You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. At this church, we seek to preach the whole counsel of God. And the main way that we do this is through expository preaching. It means we move through books of the Bible, verse by verse, explain the meaning, and seek to apply it to our lives. This keeps us from avoiding uncomfortable or difficult passages like the one we just read. I imagine some of you were sitting there listening to that saying, oh, really, we're going to do this. We're really going to do this right now. So I just want to begin by acknowledging the angst and discomfort that a passage like that may cause. Slaves, masters, striking with rods, crimes worthy of death. This passage makes us uncomfortable. And the first step towards addressing that discomfort is understanding. Our first goal should be to understand what actually is being said here. So today's sermon will be light on application. And given the constraints of time, we'll have to focus our attention. So we're not going to be exhaustive. We had more time, we could walk through a number of those laws in much more detail, but instead we're going to focus our attention. And so I just want you to remember 555. Here's my goal. This is the outline for the sermon. I want to make five brief remarks about how we approach the law in general. Most of them are reminders from previous sermons from a year or so ago, which means none of you should probably remember them. Then I want to make five observations from the first 11 verses that contains laws on slavery, and then five observations from the last section of today's passage that deal with laws related to violence. So five, five, and five. That's what we're going to do. And may God be gracious to us. So number one, the law in general, five observations that we should keep in mind as we come here to the book of the covenant, chapters 21 to 23 of the book of Exodus, which is an extension of the law that we've read in the 10 commandments in chapter 20. Number one, God's law is holy, righteous, and good. We have to start there. The apostle Paul insists on this in Romans 7. The law is holy, righteous, and good. It reveals God's character, His justice, His mercy, His holiness, His grace, His wisdom in weaving these together for the good of His people. The law is holy and righteous and good. So what you just read, you need to know, according to the Bible, is holy and righteous and good. Number two, we must never abstract commandments from their context. That includes their immediate legal context, like the other laws around them. There's a bunch of laws in there that were clustered. It means the, the immediate narrative context, the story that it's a part of. So this law is embedded within the story of God's redemption of His people from bondage in Egypt on their way to the promised land. It's embedded in there, and we can't take it out and treat it like it's just an isolated pearl or nugget of wisdom. We can't abstract it from the wider canonical context. Canonical means whole Bible. So it's, this is a passage in the book of Exodus, 
which is in the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, which is within the Old Testament, law, prophets, and writings, which is within the Scriptures as a whole, which reaches its climax in the revelation of Jesus. Which means we never read a verse without all of that putting weight on our understanding. So we must not read laws in isolation as though they were autonomous commands which fell from heaven. Number three, a key part of that wider context, which we must always keep in mind, is God's original design in creation, man's rebellion against God, and God's redemptive purposes. Creation, fall, redemption. All of those must exert weight as we read these passages. Jesus clearly, succinctly displays this at one point in the Gospels. Let me bring that forward, and I want you to have this in your head as we go through not just this passage, but the rest of the law. The Pharisees came to him. This is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. And they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Well, why did Moses then command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So as we interpret God's laws, we must keep in mind two things. From the beginning, it was not so. And number two, God gave you some commandments because of the hardness of your heart. In other words... Part of the goodness and the righteousness of God's law is its awareness of God's original design and a kind of temporary, merciful accommodation to the reality of human sinfulness and rebellion. As one commentator puts it, some passages in the Old Testament present a picture of, God, of what God wanted us to be, that's original design, creational intent, and other passages seek to limit the damage arising from a broken world. So we want to keep that in mind. From the beginning, it was not so. There are passages which we need to have that framework. And some texts are given because of the hardness of heart to limit the damage caused by human sin. Number four. We need to remember and recall the nested nature of the law, meaning nested as in like Russian nesting dolls, like there's layers and, and depths to it. So here's, here's the summary, one, one way we can do that. We can move from the greatest commandment or commandments, two of them, Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the overarching umbrella and then nested under that, kind of particularizing that are the Ten Commandments. We did a whole entire sermon series trying to draw out how love for God and love for neighbors show up in the Ten Commandments, which was in Exodus 20. And then down from there to the application and extension of those commandments in the life of Israel. Here's what we said 
back a year or so, two years ago, I don't even remember, COVID, right? So here's what we said in a sermon at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. God's holy character is reflected and expressed in the law of human nature, universal, unchangeable, applying all times and all places, and written on your heart. The law of Moses is a specific published covenant between God and His people Israel for a particular era of history. And the laws within the law of Moses contain layers and combinations. Like there's a moral layer which is connected to that universal law. There's a ceremonial layer which teaches us through symbols and images and that God changes at different times in history. And there's a judicial layer or a civic layer which applies that moral and ceremonial layer in Israel's context with penalties and which we can use as wisdom in our own attempts to apply the law today. But as Christians, we are not under the Mosaic law directly as a covenant. We're under grace. We're in Christ. All authority has been given to him as the head of the new covenant. So just reminding us that there are layers here as we dig into the word. And then finally, fifth observation, generally, you need to recognize that the law of Moses provided legal and ethical instruction to Israel's leaders. Okay, so they're coming out of Egypt. Okay, they're coming out of Egypt. They're about to start a new nation. And God is specifying the kind of nation it's to be. So you see in the Bible an awareness of certain layers of the law in earlier texts before Exodus, like Noah, if you remember the story of Noah, Noah knows the difference between clean and unclean animals. It's long before Moses came down the mountain. Or the expectations on families in terms of inheritance among the patriarchs. Think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so on. So there's, there's an awareness of God's expectations back in Genesis. But now Israel was to be more than just a household, more than a nation under the thumb of a foreign power, Egypt. Now they're to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's Exodus 19, immediate context. And then in Exodus 18, with the encouragement of Moses' father-in-law Jethro, they've now gonna, they're going to appoint elders and judges in Israel to govern and judge between the people. And so on what basis will those men make their decisions? How will they decide what to do? Well, the law given to Moses is the answer to that question. It's ethical and legal instruction to Israel's leaders. And notice the kind of answer it is. The law of Moses is not a law code. Follow me on this. It's not a law code. It's a case law system. So what's the difference? Law code, case law system. A law code attempts to be exhaustive, covering as many contingencies and situations and hypotheticals, covering as many as possible ahead of time so that you know in every situation this is exactly how it's going to look. Okay, so if you try to do a law code, it gets really long. Okay, it looks like the U.S. tax code. Cover every contingency imaginable. Okay. The case law system is different. It's exemplary, meaning it, it shows examples. 
It offers case studies designed to reveal God's character, His principles, His priorities as they come into human contact with human life in a particular context. That's what, that's what he gave them, a case law system, not an exhaustive cover every base all, all the time, but a case law, examples so that you get the principles, which means Israel's leaders, those men that Moses was to appoint to help, they were called to meditate and reflect on God's law so that they would grow in wisdom and knowledge of who God is and what he expects. They're meditate on it. That's over and over again. In the Old Testament, you hear that? Meditate on the law. Meditate on the law. It means you would take what we just read and they would think and pray and digest. And what does God want me to see? What is the principle? What's underneath this? How did it come into contact? How does it all fit together? And so what were they to pay attention to? Well, the law itself, the case law. We just read a bunch of them. The arrangement and clustering of those laws together. So, for example... Many laws seem to be clustered in relation to one of the Ten Commandments. Like, here's a cluster that has to do with violence and murder sorts of stuff. And here's a cluster that has to do with sexual morality. And here's a cluster that has to do with the Sabbath and festivals. And so they cluster together. And you're, and you're supposed to look at that and go, there's connections in there that we need to see as I meditate. The rep uh, third thing they could meditate on the repetition of the law there's laws that are repeated different times in the pentateuch itself similar laws at different points so you might see the law show up in exodus and it shows up with a little bit of a difference in leviticus or in numbers or in deuteronomy and sometimes that law might be clustered with one set of, of laws and another time it might be clustered with a different set and you're supposed to pay attention over here it was with the laws against theft over here, it was with the laws against sexual immorality. I need to think about that. And finally, we ought to meditate on the punishments associated with the different violation, because then we learn the relative gravity of different principles. For example, we learn the difference between murder and manslaughter. The punishments are different. Or between murder and theft, the punishments are different. That tells us about God's priorities. So then, those are the five big picture observations to keep in mind. The law is holy, righteous, and good. Don't abstract the commandments from their context. Remember God's original design and the way that He accommodates hardness of heart temporarily. The nested nature of the law, the layers from the great, great commandments to the Ten Commandments to their application, and then these are ethical instruction so that as we med meditate on the law, we grow in wisdom and knowledge of God. That's the five big pictures. Now, let's go to what we just read. Five observations beginning with the laws on slavery. But before we do, let me just make a comment about terminology. As Americans, every one of us hears the word slave through the lens of American history. Every one of us does this. Two years ago, uh, in preaching one of the passages in the New Testament that addressed masters and slaves, we explored some of the similarities and differences between Roman slavery at the time of Jesus and Paul and New World slavery from the 1500s through the 1800s compared and contrasted. If you want to go find that sermon, if you weren't here, it's called Slavery and the Love of Money, and it's on our website. In that sermon, 
we saw a number of similarities between the ungodly pagan system in Rome and the supposedly Christian system reintroduced by European nations out of greed and love for money. And we noted that reintroducing slavery as they did was an assault on the fruit of the gospel because the gospel had undermined, transformed, and ended that old pagan system. And then they brought it back because of the love of money. The reintroduction of slavery in the West repaganized the social order. It was a step backward. How so? It, entire ethnic groups were dehumanized. Their bodies were treated with the utmost contempt, and their souls were assaulted by the lies of racial superiority and supremacy. Now, this morning, we're not talking about Roman slavery in the first century, but we're going back 2,000 years before that to ancient Near Eastern slavery at the time of Moses. And at the outset, it's important to recognize that there are a wide array of economic and social relationships that fall under the terms that are translated in your Bible as master and slave. The word master is Baal. Ebed is the word for servant or slave. So those two terms encompass everything. Here's kind of the range of what might fall underneath those words. Everything from an employee under a long-term contract, right? Like six years. You saw that in the text. A debtor who is working off his debt in service to a creditor. That would be a master-slave relation. A permanent, lifelong relation of servitude could be a master-slave relationship. And then within those categories, we see all kinds of distinct distinctions. Here, there's distinctions between you have Hebrew slaves of Hebrew masters. That's here in Exodus 21. Other places, there's non-Hebrew slaves of Hebrew masters, like Deuteronomy 24 gets into that situation. And then there's places where there's Hebrew slaves of non-Hebrew masters, like earlier in the book of Exodus under Pharaoh. We find in the Bible there are morally permissible ways of entering into a Baal-Eved relation, a master-slave relation, like a voluntary contract to pay off a debt, prisoners captured in war. And there are morally wicked ways of entering into that relation, such as kidnapping, man-stealing. So my point here is simply to say this at the outset. There are all sorts of ordered, hierarchical, social, and economic relationships in the ancient world, some of them benign and good and godly and good, and others wicked and cruel. And my goal today is to try to help us understand the laws and principles in Israel in their context. So I'm not planning in this sermon to draw extensive parallels, comparisons, and contrasts between ancient Hebrew slavery and New World or American slavery, like I did in the other sermon. However, I do plan to highlight two major ways that New World slavery directly and egregiously violated the law of God set down in this passage. We'll get there in a moment. Okay, so now in saying ancient slavery covered a wide array of social relations, I don't 
I'm not suggesting that this is just like modern employment. That what this is talking about is just the same as you having a job and your boss. It wasn't. Slaves were typically a part of a master's household. Living on his land or in his tents as opposed to going to the factory or the office and returning home at the end of the day. One commentator actually made a pretty good parallel to help think through this. The better modern analogy to this kind of relation might be military service. Okay, Because you commit to military service, often for a set period of time, and during that time, you relinquish a number of your freedoms. In exchange, you receive compensation, like housing, food, clothing, money. So the military receives your service, and you're obligated to follow orders and fulfill your duties. And if you don't, you can be punished for breach of that service. So that's a, maybe an analogy that's more contemporary that we can begin to wrap our minds around. If we begin to make that kind of parallel, some things might make more sense. All right, now to the five, five observations. With that background, 21 verses 2 to 11. What do we notice as we meditate and reflect on these laws? Number one, first, the focus here is on Hebrew slaves of Hebrew masters, not arrangements between Hebrew masters and Gentile slaves. Just an observation. There's other sets of laws for that situation. Number two, the focus here is on the release of slaves, the release of slaves. Male slaves in verses two to six, female slaves in verses seven to 11. And that focus on release is important because it's connecting these laws to the prologue of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of slavery. Not into slavery, mainly. Out of slavery. Now, Israel is a slave in God's house. He'll talk that way. But they're slaves on the way to being sons in God's house who will inherit all of his blessings. The fundamental background, the story Underneath these laws is God's deliverance of his people from the harsh and cruel taskmasters of Pharaoh and Egypt. And so it's significant that the first time in the law of Moses that we see directly addressed the subject of slavery, the focus is how do you let them go? How do you let them go? How does that work? Third, the basic law in this section is given in 21 verse 2. You can buy a fellow Hebrew for a period of six years. After that, he goes free, and he doesn't have to buy his way out. And we, That language of buy, another commentator pointed out, we talk that way, like sports. Anybody follows sports? You know that that's how you talk about players sometimes. You know, when they get traded, they, they buy the contract, and therefore they're contracted to a team, and then that team could sell that player, trade, right? They're trading people. Okay, now... Obviously, it's different, but that language of buy can include that kind of connotation. Okay, so he doesn't have to buy his way out. The master's compensation, what does the master get? Six years of labor. What does the master provide? Food, housing, and provision for his servant over those six years. And beyond that, the servant is not obligated. He doesn't have to then at the end of six years pay the master a bunch of money in order to go free. He just goes free. He fulfilled his contract. And if we compare that law in 21 to Deuteronomy 15, 12, which is where the similar thing shows up. Remember, that's part of meditating is connecting dots. We see the master ought to generously equip his slave upon completion of his service. 
You shall, quote, you shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. You should give him gifts as he goes. And perhaps we hear in that command an echo of Exodus, in which the Egyptians gave gifts of gold and silver and fine linens to the Hebrews as they went. The difference is that whereas the Egyptians were compelled to release the Hebrews and give gifts by God's judgment upon them, Hebrew masters are to be generous to their servants because of God's blessing upon them. You've been blessed. Bless them as they go, is what God says. As God, who is your master, has blessed you, so you should bless him. So again, the laws are rooted in God's holy character and the story of his gracious actions on behalf of his people. Fourth, after stating the basic pr principle in verse 2, the focus of the rest of the passage is the intersection of two things, the master-slave relation and the marital relation. That's what the entire passage is about. How do those things connect? What kind of obligations obtain? So if a man, it's simple. It's like simple scenario, man comes in single or a man comes in married, super simple. He finishes his service the same way. Okay? But what if his marital status changes in the middle of it? What if, so follow this, Three years into his six-year contract, he marries a female servant who has five years left on her six-year contract. How, what happens then? In that case, she has to complete her term of service. Getting married doesn't, doesn't change her terms. That's the point of the passage. She, she still belongs, belongs to the master. But the servant then here has an option, and he, he has to count the cost, think through it. It's not a rash decision. He could become a permanent slave in his master's household. So that means one thing here. When it comes to Hebrews and Hebrews, Hebrew masters, Hebrew servants, Hebrew slavery is always temporary unless it is voluntary. It's always temporary unless it is voluntary. There's a time limit with blessing unless you say, you know what? This is a hard world. And if I'm out there on my own, am I going to be able to provide for myself and my wife and our kids? Or is being a member of this household better for me and for them? And if you say, I love my wife and I love my master and I love my children and being a part of this household is a good and a blessing to me, I'm staying here for life. This is no longer a contract. This is more covenantal, which is why you need a sign for it. And they go to the door. You go to the God and you say, this is, we're in. We're all in. Permanent for life. And you go to the door and he takes a, an awl and he bores through the ear. So now you're marked with that master that you love. And the mention of the ear, the blood, and the doorpost, just again, you can't help but call to mind earlier bloods and doorposts in the book of Exodus, Passovers, and begin to consider symbolic connections that might be at play there. Fifth, turning to the situation of female slaves, okay? Notice marriage is still in view, okay? But, you, but we all go, what kind of father sells his daughter into slavery? What's that? Remember that all marriages at this time in history are arranged marriages, and money was always involved. 
A father or a brother would arrange for his daughter or sister to be married. Think about Jacob and Laban back in the book of Genesis. The groom or his family would pay a bride price. Why would they do that? Think of the bride price as compensation to the bride's family for the loss of a valuable and productive member of that household. There will be more mouths to feed now because she was probably producing and benefiting more people. And so this is a way of making up for the loss of her from their household. That's what the bride price is for. And so the scenario here seems to be a man has acquired a female servant with the intent of eventually making her his wife or his son's wife. That's the arrangement that's been made. So there are two arrangements in view. First, there's service in the household as a servant, like earlier, six-year contracts. And then there's this future marriage in view. And it's like, how do those two things relate? Well, the point is the agreement to marry her carries obligations. You can't just back out of that. He can't simply, the, the master can't simply change the agreement if he decides, I don't want to marry her or I don't want to give her in marriage to my son. He can't just then say, well, she's my servant, so I can sell her to a foreign people. Not allowed to do that. He has to treat her like a daughter if he had designated her for his son. And if he takes a second wife to himself, just parentheses here, from the beginning it was not so. Some laws were given to accommodate hardness of heart. Okay, right? You remember, Adam only gave up one rib and had one wife, not two ribs, and got two wives. That's not how it was in the beginning. So these laws are accommodating hardness of heart. Polygamy was not God's original intent. So, But if he takes a second wife to himself, notice he still has obligations. He doesn't get to demote her and make her a second-class wife. If he does, she's freed from her obligations, and she can leave, and she doesn't have to give back the bride price. His, her family doesn't have to say, well, that money that you gave us when we arranged the marriage, you get that back. No, 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 no. He changed the deal. He has to suffer the consequences. So... In all of these laws, I want you to see God's wisdom in giving instruction to Israelite society in a broken and sinful world. And in that society, no one is able to exploit or take advantage of each other. Obligations flow both ways. Servants have obligations. Masters have obligations. Husbands have obligations. Fathers have obligations. And navigating that complexity of service and marriage and inheritance against the background of polygamy and debt and family and human sin is really complicated. And God's law in that context is holy and righteous and good. Last section. Laws addressing violence. These laws are all clustered, I think, around the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And there are four subgroups here. Verses 12 to 17, these are violent offenses worthy of death. Verses 18 to 27, violent offenses not worthy of death. 28 to 32 is animal violence against people. And 33 to 36 is violence from animals against other animals, mutual animal violence. So they're all about violence. That's the common thread. So what do we see here? I'm just going to give you five little undercurrents. Number one, intent matters. There's a distinction between murder and manslaughter, accidental manslaughter. If you willfully and premeditatedly kill an innocent person, it's a capital crime, and it doesn't matter if you come to the temple and get on your face and say, please don't. They can haul you out and put you to death for your crime. But if it was accidental, if it was accidental death under your hand, it's still a grave issue. 
and it requires consequences, but it does not require death. In that case, God promises cities of refuge will be established, because remember at this time there are no prisons, in which if you've accidentally killed someone, you can flee there and you can reside for the rest of your lives. And there's a lot more detail on those in Numbers chapter 35 if you want to look there. And so those laws overthrow the unwritten system of blood feuds that dominated the ancient world, right? So blood feuds, in many societies, if you killed a member of my family, intentionally or not, I was obligated to take vengeance upon you and your family. Which then, if you follow that, means that you're then obligated to take vengeance on my family, and you can see where that's going to end. There will be blood. This system undoes that and says, not how it's going to work in Israel. The Bible rejects that entire approach to justice. When an avenger of blood is mentioned, he acts under the regulation of the society as a whole and in obedience to God. He's not merely a member of his family taking vengeance. You see the same focus of intent? Again, in verse 18 and 19. So when men quarrel, there's mutual responsibility. So this is different than if you planned and like attacked somebody. But this is the, the heat of the moment. Fear, anger, host of passions. Two men are just quarreling and it gets out of control. There are still consequences. Someone has to pay the hospital bills. Someone has to compensate the injured man for lost time. But if the injured man was partly to blame for the fight then the situation is different than if he was simply attacked in cold blood. Intent matters. That's the first thing I want you to note about these laws. Second, note the way that the violations can be combined. So violations of the Ten Commandments. So violence is a violation of the Sixth Commandment against murder. Then you can take uh, the violation of the Fifth Commandment, against parents, and you combine them, and it's a greater offense than general violence. So if you, if you violate the fifth and the sixth together, that's worse than if you violated one or the other by themselves. Does that make sense? To beat one's parents and to publicly repudiate, denounce, and curse them, that's what revile means there, before the community is a capital crime in Israel. So like, if you take a lesser form of the sixth commandment, so this is violence, not murder. So you haven't killed anybody. But if you take that lesser form of violence and you combine it with it's towards your parents, that combination elevates the gravity of it to capital offense in God's mind. God recognizes that human society depends on the order and structure provided by the family and by the relations of authority that flow from it. And therefore, to tear those bonds apart threatens society. Similar combination in 2116. Kidnapping combines a violation of the sixth commandment, murder, with a high-handed violation of the eighth, theft. So you kidnap and steal an innocent man and enslave him against his will, that's the same as killing him intentionally and warrants the same punishment. Which means the system of slavery, here's the application, practiced in America and the New World, built as it was on kidnapping and man-stealing, was a high-handed affront to God. Every pirate, kidnapper, and slaver participating in that middle passage was committing high-handed wickedness worthy of death. Third, we see restrictions on corporal punishment. Corporal punishment's allowed. You can't sit, but, you, but there's restrictions. You can't simply beat a slave to death. Unheard of in the ancient world, by the way. 
Every other society, slave was your property, do what you want. Here, uh uh-uh, he's a human being, you got to treat him that way. We wonder about the survival of a slave a day or two, that puzzles us, but it likely is the issue of intent. What was he trying to do? Was this accidental or intentional? That's what that is getting at. And now we come to the third way that slavery violated God's character in America. Okay, the first way was that it undid the gospel and repaganized the social order, treating entire ethnic groups dehumanizingly. The second, it was built on man-stealing and kidnapping, which was worthy of death. And finally here, there were no laws like this in America that restricted the punishments able to be meted out by masters. And therefore, masters had legal permission in America to further dehumanize their slaves through cruelty and barbarism. The law of God said slaves are image bearers worthy of legal protection. American laws did not, and therefore they egregiously and wickedly violated God's word. How many masters in the new world would have met God's justice and vengeance for the treatment of their slaves? How many slaves would have been freed if laws like if you put out their eye, they go free? If you knock out the tooth, they go free. If you permanently damage them in any way, they go free. How many slaves have been freed? So, three ways that American slavery violated God's law. God hated all three. The repaganized social order, capital crimes through kidnapping and enslaving, and the absence of legal protections that ensured humane treatment. That system in the past, God hated. And I would be remiss, I think, if having highlighted and condemned three ways that American society in the past egregiously violated God's law, I neglected to point out that American society in the present does the same thing. Slaves are not the only marginalized social group that are humanized in our passage today. So are the unborn. And we live in a repaganizing society that dehumanizes unborn children, commits capital crimes against unborn innocents, and that lacks legal protection for just and righteous treatments of our children. And far be it from us to condemn and lament the sins of the past while ignoring or excusing the sins of the present. Final two things, real briefly. The mention of unborn neighbors reminds us of a key principle of justice in the law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Principle of proportionate response. And it's not meant to be applied literalistically. Notice he says eye for an eye, and then the next passage is if you put out his eye, it's not put out the master's eye. It's let him go free. It's equivalent. It's gravity that's the point. That's the principle we're supposed to get. And finally, we see the importance of carefulness and our responsibility to avoid recklessness. If a quarrel spills over and harms bystanders, there are consequences. If your ox has committed violence repeatedly, greater punishment. Repeat offense, greater punishment punishment. We live in a fallen world and we can't control everything, but you do have a responsibility to control what you can and to learn from failures of the past. So then, summarizing here, intent matters, heart, the heart matters to God. Lesser violations of one law can be combined with violations of another, and that ups the ante. We live in a fallen world and God places limits on the power of those in authority Justice means proportionate response. The punishment must fit the crime, no more and no less. And while we can't control everything, we have to learn from the past and take responsibility for preventing violence and harm. And so here we come to the table. 
Verse 5, the slave says, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I'm staying here. And in this, we see a picture of Christ's relationship to us. We love him, and we love the people in his household. And in the passage, the love slave has his ear bored by his master at a doorpost, leaving his blood there. And as I said, this can't help but remind us of the Passover in which the blood of a lamb on the doorpost protected the people from eye-for-an-eye justice that was due to them. And so here we are at the table of the master who humbled himself, took the form of a servant, a slave, and became obedient to death. And we are at the table of the Passover lamb whose blood is the ultimate expression of love and justice. Let's pray. Father, your law is good and requires much meditation and reflection, much more than we could do in that short time frame. Lead us, Lord, to meditate and reflect upon your law that we might know you, that we might know you through it. And in knowing you, love you and each other. Grant us grace, we pray, Lord, to live this out. In Jesus' name, amen.